The name Abigail Disney might have a familiar ring to it. It's familiar because of the last name, Disney. Abigail Disney is the granddaughter of Roy Disney, who together with her, his brother, Walt Disney, founded Disney World. Disneyland, I guess, and Disney World came later. Well, Abigail is not as well known, but she's made a bit of a name for herself, as well as a filmmaker, and as a writer, and as an activist. But something she said this week caught people's attention, including mine, in thinking about the subject that we're on in the Gospel of John. She didn't say anything religious per se. She was commenting, uh, commenting on a trend in the financial world, the fact that, really just the fact that CEOs, CEOs make too much money these days. But in order to prove her point, she invoked Jesus Christ as her point of comparison. Listen carefully to what she said, quote, if your CEO salary is 700, 600, 500 times your median worker's pay, and she stopped and she said, there's nobody on earth. Jesus Christ himself isn't worth 500 times his median worker's pay. End quote. Isn't that interesting? Abigail Disney is saying something unintentionally noteworthy about Jesus Christ. In the world of idioms and figures of speech and symbols and hyperbole, Jesus is seeing, seen as being of incomparably great value, though not infinite value. Jesus Christ himself, the most valuable human in her imagination and in her estimation, is worth even more, way more than a company CEO. Jesus, to her way of thinking, is someone that is worthy of honor. And she's, of course, right about that. So she's using his name as a way of proving a point. But in saying that, she is saying more than she knows, isn't she? She's saying something more than she knows because Jesus is of infinite value. And I mention that because that's what happens in the passage that we'll look at today in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Although in John 19, Jesus is presented, as we get to this portion of the events there in Jerusalem, as anything but valuable. He is presented as anything but valuable. He's actually brought out and displayed to his people as a king, even going so far as to have, having a, a crown and a royal robe. But as he's presented in that way, it's a total mockery. Because he comes out beaten and bloodied with no ordinary crown. It's a crown made of thorns. He's not used, not brought out to display value. He's brought out to show how pitiable and how pathetic and how powerless he looks. Well, let me read this passage for us. Next week, Lord willing, we are going to get to the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is the scene right before that. The final part of the events that end with Jesus being sentenced to be crucified. We pick it up at John 19 
verse 1. John chapter 19, verse 1. Actually, we're going to back up a little bit right to John 18 is where I want to start reading in the middle of verse 38. And we'll read it right up to the beginning of John 19, verse 16. So this is 1838. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. And so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And now to our section. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the elders twisted together the crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and elders, or the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. Referring to a law in Leviticus 24, 16, and he says, According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, You'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to be crucified. So it ends. It ends with Pilate, the Roman governor in Roman-governed Jerusalem. We were introduced to him last week, back in chapter 18, verse 29, is the first time he's mentioned here in the Gospel of John. But we're introduced to him, and now he's delivering Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. But throughout this scene... Jesus had been bound and arrested by a mob. He'd been initiated, uh, which was initiated, the, the arrest by Jewish leaders, religious leaders, who had already decided as far back as John chapter 11, verse 53, that they were going to put him to death. 
So it was already predetermined what was going to happen. And from then on, they had to figure out a way, they had to essentially make up a way to get the Romans to make it official. Jews couldn't do that on their own. But they have a problem. And that problem is that Pilate, who again is the Roman governor in that part of the empire at this time, Pilate had no reason to put Jesus to death. And that's precisely because Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. And that's what this run-up to the cross is all about, at least from a human perspective, if we look at this just from the point of view of the events on the ground. Pilate has no reason to put Jesus to death, and the Jewish religious leaders are are out for blood. That's what's going on. You see the dilemma. But if we just sort of zoom out from Jerusalem and look at these things from the bigger picture point of view, as, as John is deciding how to report these events, we notice that these things are dripping with irony. There's more going on here than meets the eye. And that's precisely because this is all part of God's greater plan for rescuing his people. While Pilate is delivering Jesus over to be crucified, verse 16, God has already purposed to have Jesus, in the words of 1 Thessalonians 1.9, deliver us from the wrath to come. While Pilate is delivering Jesus over to be crucified, God is purposing to deliver us from the wrath to come. Starting back in Chapter 18, verse 28, Jesus is being led back and forth between Pilate's headquarters, where he and Jesus can be alone, to out in the courtyard where the Jews are waiting. That verse tells us that they couldn't go inside so that they would not be defiled. They couldn't go into the headquarters of a Gentile praetorium because they'd get defiled according to their law. And so Pilate moves in and then out at the end of chapter 18. He talks to Jesus, and then he goes out and talks to the Jews. And the gist of it is that Pilate can't find any reason to sentence Jesus to death. And so I read those last few verses there in chapter 18 because it's actually quite chilling and shocking. After Pilate talks to Jesus, he comes out of the building, and at that point, he pretty much renders his verdict. And that verdict is that Jesus, in Pilate's judgment, is declared to be not guilty. It's like he might as well have hammered the gavel on his bench and said, not guilty. Verse 38, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. That's his decision. But he gives them an out. He says they have a custom at their Passover, the Jews have a custom at their Passover, that one man can be released. And notice he doesn't even mention Barabbas here in John. He says they have a custom that one man can be released, fully expecting that they would pick Jesus. But he underestimates the extent of their hatred. They cried out again, not this man, but they find another guy that they would rather have named Barabbas. And notice what John inserts there, right at the end of chapter 18. Just a simple five-word factual sentence. Now Barabbas was a robber. End.
stop. I mean, there's no chapter divisions in the original, but it's just an ending, and then he goes on to something else. Pastor Andrew pointed out last week that a better word would be a terrorist. That is what Barabbas was, or an insurrectionist. Here's the thing. Barabbas was, in fact, guilty. And Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. That's the contrast. But this is who they put forward to be released. Release the rebel, kill the innocent man. An innocent man dies, a guilty man lives. But this sets the course for the irony that we're going to see again here in chapter 19 over and over again. John really wants to highlight this. And so it comes up again here in our passage. And the irony is that the very charges for which Jesus is accused are those very things for which he sets us free. And we can see that most clearly in how all these people characterize Jesus in terms of who he is, in terms of how they identify him. In all these identifications, they say more than they think they're saying. They're saying true things about Jesus. They are identifying him rightly. But far from those identities making Jesus guilty, it's those very identities by which Jesus releases us from our guilt. So let's look at these one at a time. The first one we see there is the one that I've been hinting at already in verses 1 to 6. And it's in those words that Pilate has already said back in chapter 18, verse 38. I find no guilt in him. Pilate investigates Jesus. He brings him in. He interrogates him. And in his judgment, he finds him not guilty. Not guilty of what? Well, the Jews are trying to paint Jesus as someone who's trying to become a king. And someone who's trying to uh, get Israel out from Roman rule. That's what they want Pilate to see about Jesus. So that he condemns them, condemns Jesus to high treason. To insurrection, to sedition. The Jews figure that charge would be enough for Rome to crucify Jesus. But the problem is, is that Jesus is not guilty of this. He's not even close to being guilty and Pilate knew it. And so he doesn't just say it once here in John 18, but two more times in chapter 19. I find no guilt in him. After the uh, release a Jewish prisoner at Passover attempt failed, Pilate tries another strategy to release Jesus in chapter 19. He figures if he can show that Jesus has already been interrogated and punished for claiming to be a king that the Jews would then be satisfied and say, okay, good enough. He's been suitably disciplined. And so it says Pilate took Jesus, so he took him inside again, and flogged him. That means they beat him and whipped him. And by the way, this was not the same as the, as the heavy beating that he gets later on that, that lacerated him severely. This was more of a lighter beating that they would use just to teach people a lesson. But severe enough that Jesus would have been beaten and bloodied. Like I said, Pilate wants to satisfy the Jews that Jesus had been duly tried, investigated, and punished. Let's just skip over to verse 4. I'm going to come back to 
verses 2 and 3 later. Pilate comes out to the Jews then and says, See, I'm going to bring him out to you. Why? That you may know that I find, here it is, no guilt in him. Same thing he said before, and he's going to say it again down in verse 6. I find no guilt in him. Why does he say that over and over again? It's almost like Pilate is saying, how many different ways or how many different times can I say it? I find no guilt in him. Well, it highlights this fact. That Jesus was an innocent man. Jesus was an innocent man condemned to die for crimes that he did not commit. And furthermore, the fact that no guilt could be found in him shows us that the innocence of this man exposes the corruption and the evil and the depravity of all men. Therein lies the irony. And therein lies our only hope that we should not be condemned. When Pilate marches Jesus out and says, Behold the man, he's displaying the beaten and bloody Jesus. He's saying, Look, here he is right in front of you. Look at him. And friends, we have to allow this image of Jesus to be regularly paraded in front of our eyes, the eyes of our minds, the eyes of our hearts. It reminds us that this beaten and bloodied man was innocent. It reminds us why God became a man. It reminds us that Jesus was the perfect man, yet he was treated like a robber. It reminds us that Jesus was treated as if he was a robber so that the robber would walk away and be treated as if he was innocent. Friends, behold the man. Behold the innocent man. Behold the man in whom no one can find any guilt. See, Pilate was saying more than he knew. I find no guilt in him. I wonder how you will find Jesus when you look at him as he is being presented to you even this morning. I pray that you will behold him as that innocent man, as the one who died in your place, taking upon himself the guilt and the punishment for your sins. Behold the man, Christ Jesus. The reality is that you are found guilty. I am found guilty. All of us are found guilty. Without Christ, we would all receive the penalty for our sins. You will receive the penalty for your sins without Christ. But when you behold the innocent man and when you throw yourself onto him for mercy, trusting in his perfect life and in his death in your place, you can be declared not guilty. Jesus takes the penalty for your sin. And that should lead us, as it did this morning, to worship and praise. When you behold the man, Christ Jesus, in that way, even though you are totally guilty, you can praise God that you are totally forgiven. So Pilate, ironically and unintentionally, highlights the innocence of the man. Marches him outside and says, Behold the man, thinking that once they see Jesus beaten and bloodied, they'll just say, That's enough. He's no threat. Look at him. He looks pathetic. 
He's harmless. But Pilate was wrong. It has the opposite effect. It actually foments more outrage. They only have one outcome in their minds. Verse 6, when the chief priests, and that's notable that this is the chief priest now, he's not just talking about the Jews in general or the crowds in general. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, these are the religious elite, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, in frustration, says, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. But then in verse 7, we see another description of who Jesus is. This time it comes from these chief priests. They're frustrated too. Their their strategy and their made-up charge didn't work either. And so their real reason for wanting Jesus dead is exposed. We have a law, they say, and according to that law, he ought to die Because he has made himself to be the son of God. This is why they want him dead. Notice that they become self-appointed judges of God's law. They become self-appointed judges of God's law in order to judge God. Another irony. The bottom line reason the Jewish religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus is that he claimed to be God. And on this, again, they're exactly right. Jesus did make himself out to be the Son of God over and over again. In fact, everyone said it. God himself said it. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Said it at his baptism and again on the mountain at the transfiguration. Even the demons say that. In Matthew 8 verse 29. John the Baptist said it back in John chapter 1 verse 34. Martha had said it in John 11 verse 27. Peter confessed Jesus as the Son of God. He has made himself to be the Son of God, and they were right. That's who he was. But for them, it's blasphemy. And tragically, they reject Jesus and kill Jesus, knowing full well that he claimed to be the Son of God. This is full and complete rejection. Those words, Son of God, though, affect Pilate as well. Verse 8, when Pilate heard that statement... He was even more afraid. This whole thing was turning into a nightmare for Pilate. He was charged, his commission from Rome was to keep the peace in Jerusalem. But this was escalating into a full-scale riot. And if there was a riot, it would get back to Rome and to Caesar, which would mean trouble for Pilate. Caesar in charge at this time, Tiberius, was not known to be a nice guy. He didn't put up with a whole lot. And so Pilate was already afraid. His neck was on the line. But why did this statement make him even more afraid? Well, I believe it was those three words at the end of verse 7, Son of God. Pilate, like most Romans who worshipped a host of gods, was very superstitious. And so when they identified Jesus as the Son of God, Pilate started wondering if that might be true. Remember, he first just prayed him out as a man. Behold the man. But now this, this came into his head. What if, what if he is a Son of God? And if that was true, that Jesus was an offspring of a God, that God might come down to Pilate and curse him. That's what the Romans and Greeks believed, that the sons of the gods, the offspring of the gods, could come down to the people. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 14, Paul 
and Barnabas there in Lystra heal a paraplegic man. When the crowd saw that Paul could heal people, they say this in Acts 14.11, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes. That's what made Pilate even more afraid. He now had to consider the possibility that Jesus was more than just a man. And so he brings Jesus inside again and he asks him, where are you from? In other words, what, what God do you come from? Whose son are you? Well, Jesus doesn't even answer him, which is never a good thing for the people that ask the question. Silence from God. And Pilate basically says to Jesus, you know, don't go mute on me now. I've got the power to let you go or I've got the power to have you killed. Just just talk to me. Help yourself out here. And then Jesus says, we're in verse 11 now, and this is the only time that Jesus talks in this whole section. He says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me. You would have no power over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And here's the clue that all of this all the trials, all the mockery, all the, you know, the role of the soldiers, the role of Judas, the role of the mob, the role of the high priest, the role of Pilate, they all happen only by God's decree. He is the true and real authority. He is in charge of all of this, every single part of it. It's, and it's all leading to his eternal decree that in his great love he would send a redeemer that would purchase his people with his blood even while they were yet sinners. And that redemption of sinful people required not only a sinless man, it required the Son of God. It required someone who was both truly man and truly God. Someone who could represent both man and God. Someone who was the Son of God. This was Jesus. And the bloodthirsty chief priests are the very ones who, ironically and unintentionally, make that confession. What they meant for evil, God turned to good. Do you recognize Jesus as God made flesh? That's how he's presented here, right in the face of this seemingly most dreadful evil act. He is the innocent man and he is the son of God. Behold the son of God. And once you behold him, worship him. Worship Christ. And if you're not a Christian, now that you have seen him as, seen Jesus as the son of God, do not reject him. Like the chief priest did. Be saved from the wrath to come. Turn from idols to the living God. Worship him. Just to finish off Jesus' words to Pilate there in verse 11, he says, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That's talking about the Jewish religious authorities, I think, led by Caiaphas, the high priest. Pilate isn't off the hook, but they commit the greater sin. Why? Because they know. They have the Old Testament scriptures that point to the promised Savior, they, they're, they're closest to spiritual things. From whom much is given, much is required. 
This is a warning to you who hear about Jesus but have not yet turned from your sins and trusted Jesus to save you from your sin. You may have been coming to our church for years and years and years, and yet you have not repented of your sin and trusted, entrusted yourself to Christ. I'm not sure what your reasons are. Maybe it's lack of understanding. Maybe, maybe you're scared of what it might mean for you in terms of how you live your life. Maybe you think you can't be forgiven. Maybe you don't think it's necessary. I'm not sure what your reasons are. might be something else that I haven't mentioned that's holding you back for some reason or another. I just want to offer to, to talk to you about that. love to talk to you about that. To tell you more about who Jesus is and what it means to be forgiven. And what it means to be in Christ. Friend, don't turn away from Jesus. That's what these religious leaders are going to do next. Brings us to the final point. Possibly the most terrifying words from anyone when presented with Jesus in all his glory and in all his splendor and with all the information that they need is to say, away with him. The Jews, the very people to whom Jesus came, in that way the most privileged people, notice they say it not even once, but twice, In verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Those words come in response to Pilate bringing Jesus outside again, propping him up in front of them and saying, now this time, behold your king. And that's the third way in this passage that Jesus is identified as king. Pastor Andrew talked last week in the passage about that a little bit already. But once again, Pilate is, ironically, and unintentionally speaking the truth. He is saying more than he knows. We need to know, we need to behold, we need to see Jesus as our king. And more than that, we need to worship Jesus as our king. And wouldn't you know it, it's the Roman soldiers of all people that make that confession. Back in those verses, we skipped over there in verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And then they come up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews. We just used the word hail in one of our songs. Hail the matchless king. Those are words of worship. Hail the king of the Jews. And then they struck him with their hands. This is mock worship. In their minds, if this is supposed to be a king, then let's hail him as king. And let's not only do that, let's press a crown of thorns on him. I won't get into this now, but I think that has all sorts of connections to the garden as well. Remember part of the curse was that when they, do the land, when they work the land, there will be thorns and thistles. This is another image of Jesus ending the curse here. But they twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And they array him in a purple robe. Let's put a robe on him. And then they proceed to humiliate him and disgrace him and beat him. And then Pilate brings him out. Verse 5 emphasizes it again, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And so the Roman soldiers pretend to worship him using, as, uh, as Carson describes, barracks vulgarity. Prison vulgarity. This is how they treat criminals. But they speak more than they know. 
Hail, King of the Jews. They're pretending to worship the one who is the King of Kings. The one who demands our worship and deserves our worship. The one who was indeed high and exalted and lifted up. The one who is King, even in his humiliation. And then back down to verse 12, picking up where we left off. It's the Jews then who go back to Pilate. Pilate had determined again to release the Son of God, but the Jews basically threatened to tell Caesar. If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And it's that that finally convinces Pilate to cave. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat himself down on the judgment seat. Skipping down to the end of verse 14, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And then those awful words in verse 15. Crowd sees Jesus. Clearly, they behold the king. And what do they say en masse? Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Having seen the king, they condemn him to death. They become self appointed judges who kill their king. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? It's almost like one last chance to change their minds. But they doubled down. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. They want Jesus dead to such a degree that they fall in line with their most despised enemies. We have no king but Caesar. They would never say that. They were oppressed by Caesar and by the Romans. But here, showing the extent again of their depravity, of our depravity, we have no king but Caesar. In verse 16, so he, Pilate, delivered him over to be crucified. It's all over. When presented with the king of kings, behold your king. They not only reject him and say away with him, they choose another king. Similar to what happened in the passage Todd read in 1 Samuel 8, they want their own king. They'll decide. And they judge the one who would become their judge. They condemn their king. But Jesus is indeed our king. He is your king. He is presented to you now as the king. Will you have him as your king? Will you have him as your Lord? Will you bow down to him in obedience and in worship? Or will you choose another king and say, Away with Jesus. I don't want him. I'll pick my own king. Thank you very much. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. In fact, I don't even need a king. I'll be in charge of what I decide. Even for us who belong to Christ, we have trouble allowing Jesus to direct our lives, don't we? What King Jesus demands of us infringes on our freedoms and our autonomy. If I become the subject of Jesus, if I really do what he tells me to do, our minds go, it might affect the way I live. And I'm not sure I want to do that completely. Maybe part of me, but but not the whole thing. Brother and sister Christian, I just want to remind you that Jesus is a good king 
To obey him is the way of freedom. To obey him is the way of freedom. His commands are not burdensome. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Free to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Behold your King. Well, the way Jesus is presented here in this final scene, before we see him on the cross, the way he's identified by those who kill him are all transformed by God into precious truths about Jesus that we all hold very dear. For his accusers, they were identities that incited ridicule and rejection. They condemn the innocent man. They reject the Son of God. They dethrone their king. But for us, these are all precious gospel truths that we hold dear and that bring us to worship and to praise. Behold the man, Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Hail the King. He is infinitely worthy of your submission and of your devotion and of your worship. When Jesus is presented before you as he has been today, Don't say away with him. Hail him as your Savior and as your King and as your Lord. Bow with me in prayer and then we'll have a closing song. Father, these events are in many respects so awful and so cruel. We sit back here today and think, if they only knew, if they only would have believed. Yet in many respects, this kind of thing happens today. People still reject Christ. I pray that that cannot be said of any in this room here today. And even for us who do know Christ and who have been saved, we admit that we often do not regard Christ as we ought, as our, as our greatest treasure. We often treat him with indifference, We often, we admit, often see Jesus as just this historical figure who accomplished something in the past at the first Easter. But we see here that the cost was too great to regard him that way. His love was too amazing to treat him with anything less than total and complete worship. Awaken our hearts, we pray, to behold all the wonder, all the glory, and all the love of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.